This is your Drive Time Prop, 30 minutes jam-packed with news of the day from the perspectives of truth, liberty, and justice. This is Monica Perez. And I'm Brad Binkley. Today's top story is the threat of recession, the volatility in the stock market. Yesterday was a terrible day. I think the Dow dropped 800 points. And all the stories are now about the inverted yield curve. So for regular listeners, you might know that I started the week saying they're all talking about China trade policy as being the reason for the volatility. But I say it's this massive debt and the inverted yield curve, or at least those are signals. Now people are talking about it. And uh, maybe I just got lucky. I don't know. But what they but a couple of policy things. I'm not even convinced there is a recession afoot. I think there are a couple of policy issues that are being promoted by this story. One is actually came out of the mouth of Trump, of course, is that we should have uh, lower interest rates that he's telling the Fed what to do from a political point of view. And since interest rates are so low, I actually found my fourth story of the week uh, about how how the government is artificially suppressing interest rates. In this case, it's Trump's actual diktat or suggestion or mandate that condo purchases be further subsidized or uh, interest rates suppressed on those. The so the this the problem with zero interest rate and the threats of recession at the same time is they will ju- justify increased deficit spending, and in so doing, we'll increase the debt. And then at the same time, if you have artificially suppressed near zero interest rates, people won't really notice. And as interest rates rise, as the likelihood that that debt cannot be paid off or will be inflated away makes interest rates rise, then that will have a major, major impact increasing our deficits. The other thing that's coming out of this story is that uh, that the trade war does have to do with it. And and this so I feel like they're going to say trade fears they're going to use to promote an even greater kind of world trade system, something even worse than the Trans-Pacific Partnership. My guess is that a couple of years ago, they decided they wanted to, they, meaning the globalists, the powers that be, wanted to reform the trade system on a worldwide basis, and they knew that the discomfort people were feeling towards globalization, this would not be the right time. So I think what they did, and I predicted this, Binkley, you and I talked about this two years ago, as soon as Brexit, or three years ago, really, starting with Brexit and Trump, that are these really populists, whatever you want to call it, backlashes? Are we really changing the direction of the world? And there was nothing could convince me that was true. I mean, this has just been going on for almost a century, this movement, if not over a century, if you start with the League of Nations, that... So what I thought was happening, and I think you agreed with me or at least recognized that it was a possibility, was that by overreacting, by not just insisting on free trade and less agreements and none of this horse trading and complicated um, picking winners and losers, that Trump instead went the other way. So we, we, not, we don't want world trade deals. We don't want multilateral trade deals, but we want unilateral trade deals. We want tariffs. We want to pick and choose the winners, but here at home. Now, that isn't really what the globalist backlash was. And to the extent it has genuine uh, bad impact or it can just be blamed for a natural economic cycle or 
an, an economic cycle that responded to extreme measures and getting us out of the Great Recession and getting us into it in the first place to the extent that that stuff now gets a bad name. The response might be, we were wrong. We overdid it. We need to re-embrace globalization because really it's the right thing. And look what terrible things happen when you reject it. And that was basically what I predicted. And today in the journal is a newspaper article, an article by Greg Ipp saying, recession risks grow as nationalism rises. And in that, he connects every single solitary die. I actually saw the headline and wrote a bunch of notes and then as I read the article, all the notes were in there connecting those dots and setting them up. So I know that was a lot, but this is this is I think this is the most important story of the day. So you think there's going to be backlash towards going going back to globalism now? Yeah, I, I expect not necessarily in the next month or two or even year or two, but these are really big geopolitical economic forces that are part of a, a transformation of the world, which literally has started a hundred years ago to kind of concentrate all the money and the power at the top. It's like a world centralized economy, not even like necessarily government, but almost like Gillette King Gillette wrote back then the world corporation. So I feel like they are are looking for a kind of economic unity. Maybe the Trilateral Commission does it as if it were three different um, columns, and then they sew them up in the end, I guess. But I, I just feel like it's this is all moving us ideologically towards greater economic unification or central control, and it was – done this way because there was some grassroots resistance at this one direction, full steam ahead thing that we were experiencing. I do recall speculating when Brexit first happened that one of the purposes of it might be to illustrate or demonstrate how bad of a decision it would be to go along with Brexit. I'm not saying it would be a bad decision. I'm saying that they were possibly trying to show it to be a bad decision so that they could then say – you see, this nationalism type stuff doesn't work, so we need to push back towards globalism now that you've seen this fail spectacularly. Yes, I totally agreed with that possibility as a big possibility, especially since Rupert Murdoch was behind it, was behind Brexit. And I doubt there's anyone who's more who's closer to the. He was the, behind Brexit. How did I forget His newspapers that? were. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, what is he doing that for? Because he's. Yeah, British nationalists, no. Doesn't he own, like, every newspaper in the world, it feels like? He owns a lot. All right, so um, I think he owns The Sun, he owns The Journal, or he did. But, yeah, he's one of the biggest. So what? what's next? What do you got? All right, I have an interesting article here from Foreign Policy titled, Will International Courts Investigate Pro-Trump Media? And the article lays out two precedent cases – in which journalists were being tried in an international court, one being a Nazi newspaper where a journalist was sentenced to death at the Nuremberg trials, and the other being a journalist who was found guilty of inciting the Rwandan genocide. And with these precedent cases, after laying out these cases, the article goes on to use the recent El Paso shooting as an example 
in similar likeness to these two cases as an example of when words incite violence. And it goes on to say in this article, the 21-year-old man accused of opening fire in an El Paso Walmart on August 3rd, killing 22, reportedly wrote a manifesto against Hispanic immigrants claiming that the attack was a response to a Hispanic invasion of Texas. Some have pointed to Trump's rhetoric, specifically his repeated use of the word invasion as inspiration for the acts. The El Paso gunsman claimed that his acts were a response to the Hispanic invasion of Texas, show that words matter, but... Where did this notion of this invasion come from, and who, if any, is responsible for spreading this ideology? And they did a study, and they found that CNN and MSNBC spent time debunking the notion of a caravan coming across the border, while Fox amplified it. So they kind of came to the conclusion that Fox and Trump were responsible for Essentially, the shootings because of spreading this this word invasion and the ideology that there was a caravan coming across the border. And the article wraps up by saying, in continually repeating Trump's sound bites and in certain cases supporting his rhetoric, some journalists have contributed to the dissemination of this hateful message. This appears to have contributed to the rise of anti-immigrant, anti-Hispanic sentiment across the United States. We are still far off from any international trials to determine responsibility for potential incitement to violence. But the precedent shows that reporters can and will be held accountable for the words they choose to use and for the outcomes that those words garner. And so the implication of the article is that right-wing conspiracy theorists better be careful because – we might just take you up before an international court. Yeah, it's terrifying, and it's clearly designed to chill, clearly. And I just might add one thing is that I read uh, a doc- uh, an article that was well-written and had evidence, and um, I investigated the evidence myself that Pueblos and Fronteros, people without frontiers, organized these caravans. So it's in evidence, and you know what? They're unpatriotic facts, I guess. They're Who is it that organizes them? Well, you know, there's like Doctors Without Frontiers, like yeah. Medicine. Oh, Sin yeah. Fron- I know. This is yeah. Pueblos in Fronteras. It's like in Spanish, people without frontiers. Yeah, okay. And, okay. and they organize some of that stuff. Okay, so uh, ready for another one? Yeah, go for it. The Philadelphia police shooting. So last night there was a standoff, um, hostage taking six wounded policemen in Philadelphia. The story, of course, came out to be like none of the cops died. They arrested the guy. They didn't just gun him down. So they were, they kept their cool under fire. They were real professionals, but it's, they were there to serve a drug warrant and they were immediately shot upon and the message that came out basically in the same words that were used after Dayton which I read on the air probably on my Saturday show this week was two things two big themes civilians or citizens or whatever the cops now call people which they also are they are not military the cops are not military we're not civilians They uh, shouldn't have the kind of firepower that could protect them from government. So resistance-grade firepower, which is all we really need, is what they're after. They don't want us to have. And then they they used, right after Dayton, this little soundbite, which I repeated, they don't want that cops, law enforcement, when they are responding to calls, 
and in this case serving drug uh, warrants, when they are responding to calls, are face grave danger because of the way citizens are armed and use their weapons. And here, within a week, is a is a prime example, plenty of coverage of this exact issue. Yeah. Did you see the story about the shooter, the Ohio shooter's friend, assembling the gun for him and saw that buying the body armor? Yeah, I, I did see that. The, so that, uh, just, that theme is in the news. So the people uh, yeah. have are too – they have too many weapons. They're too powerful seems to be the theme. Yes, for sure. And I, I will just point out from a libertarian perspective that drug raids and gun grabs are home invasions by governments, and they are going to provoke people to defend themselves. I mean, and it, when you think about it, drugs are just a, a – Drugs are a, an economic product that some people are permitted by the government to sell and some are not. And, uh, and people yeah. resent laws like that. Okay. Let's, let's keep going. Oh, yeah. oh, but just one follow up on the gun thing is that it's been in the news. It was in the news today that Trump's outspoken stand on wanting legislation to control who has guns is drawing some ire among conservatives and some of his advisors. He's clearly not acting as a politician. He's reckless with regard to uh, campaign concerns, and uh, they're they're against it. They're all he's just acting on his own on this one. So it's kind of hard to believe. I have an article here titled "Epstein Madam Found Living in Massachusetts." The Daily Mail reported that uh, Jeseline Maxwell had been found in a Massachusetts sea town of Manchester by the sea. She's apparently staying with her boyfriend, Scott Borgeson, 43, a tech CEO who owns a company called Cargo Metrics. Um, however, she hasn't been seen in three years. Nobody snapped a photo of her actually at the house, and Borg- Borgeson has told the New York Post that he came home from a trip abroad yesterday shocked to find a police escort waiting for him and that Maxwell is not living there. He said, I'm not dating her. I'm home alone with my cat. He said, she's not here. I have no idea where she is. Nobody wants to be close to this radioactive situation. I'm just an ocean policy person. I was serving my country in the military, and then I've, I've been busy working hard, and I'm an ethical person with a good reputation and integrity. He's really defending himself there. So the moral of the story here is they say they found her, yet nobody has seen her, and the person living in the house they say she's living in says that he doesn't know where she is. All right. Well, now we'll know that's a fake story. Uh, yeah, there's yeah. a couple of other stuff in the news about Epstein. One is that he had an autopsy, which I, I, Dean tweeted at me and maybe you too, that you were way ahead of this, Brad, and that the autopsy has uh, the art of ambiguity all over it. He had broken bones in his neck, which, of course, you would expect from a successful hanging suicide attempt. But they said it's actually more indicative of strangulation, but could be hanging. Yeah, so no real answer. Right, of course, as as expected. But fodder for conspiracy. Right, and then there's one more Epstein thing or a connection that uh, it, I looked for and found, which is I noticed yesterday in the news, and I actually did not make the connection yesterday. I wish I had read the story. It was in my headlines, but 
we didn't get to it. It was that New York gives uh, what I'm calling statute of limitations amnesty to child sex abuse claims. It's called the Child Victims Act. And what they're saying is that even if the statute of limitations has passed, and even if you're in your 50s, you can still go back and make claims against somebody you're accusing of sex abuse. Now, I personally think the reason I highlighted the story is that the statute of limitations is there. I don't know if they consider it a part of the Sixth Amendment where you are entitled to a speedy trial. But the idea is, especially in something like this, where there's unlikely to be physical evidence or any kind of material evidence there that you can't even remember where you are or who you were with. Any witnesses, any alibi isn't really going to be able to defend you 30 years. I mean, if somebody's in their 50s and they're claiming sex abuse as a child, it's 40 years later. It'd be very hard, like Roy Moore's, very hard to defend against that. And it really does, in my opinion, violate a basic premise of the law. But there were two things that I found interesting in what I read up on today. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal about it, Sex Abuse Suits Flood New York. The entire article, the entire article was about the Catholic Church. And I would say there, I had just seen an, a video by Ryan Dawson uh, saying, somebody tweeted at me, sexual predators in government way beyond Pizzagate. And he just goes through police, FBI, CIA, Pentagon, DHS, ICE, DFJ, goes on and on. The people who are supposedly fighting drugs and child trafficking and all that kind of stuff are arrested for it. All the time. The Boy Scouts thing was all over the news. I've read that clergy in every uh, sect is as as a as a like number of uh, allegations per clergyman is similar, if not the same or more as Catholics, that it is absolutely everywhere. And in this Wall Street Journal article, it, I, it finally in the one, two, three, four, fifth column, second to last paragraph of the entire article, it says, the first mention of a non-Catholic complaint, a complaint filed by Raul Diaz, 60, against the Boy Scouts of America, alleges abuse by a scoutmaster during camping trips in New York and New Jersey. Weekly troop meetings were held at a Manhattan Catholic church. They always <laughs> so, link it back to the Catholic even, church. Yes, but I'm linking it to something else right now, and that is this. The I, I wondered if this tied in at all to that Epstein accuser I mentioned, Jennifer Arrows. It's pronounced Arrows, which I believe is how you pronounce one of the forms of love. Uh, she, I wondered if her, because she just came up in July, like there, she, she can't, uh, if she missed the statute, you know, it seems to me she must have missed the statute of limitations. And I wondered if she used this new law and uh, I looked for it and found it. It says, with a civil lawsuit, I found this on a CBS News site, with a civil lawsuit filed Wednesday morning, Aros be became the first Epstein accuser to take advantage of the new Child Victims Act. And I think even she was given a spot to do an op-ed piece in the New York Times, which, uh, I mean, I would really want to know if she wrote it herself. Maybe she did. But, it's, but she actually cites it in there, which I hadn't read it, but... Seems to me this is this law is suspiciously coincidental with the I mean, it really literally came into effect just as Epstein died. If I if this chick's the, well, maybe I don't know what the time is, but I just heard the story on the news two days ago that it became law. And so that's what you think enabled her to 
That, that is what enabled her to it come It says forward. that. Yeah, it does yeah, say that. Yeah. That's interesting. I wonder if that'll bring more people forward. Well, I don't know. I, I don't know. I just think that in this case, I, I don't, I'm suspicious of this chick. Like, I think she's out there to have a kind of ambiguous story that yeah. could be read either way because she's not one of the people we've talked about before. Plus, all the focus is on New York, which isn't where they had gathered you, you know, mountains of evidence like they did in Florida. They, it's too late to get, gather evidence after this guy got out of jail. You know what I mean? So, like, her story is a little fishy to me. And the timing of this law, which I consider to be a bad law, it's just it, it supports my doubts. So this girl is actually I saw the interview that she did. She actually claims that Epstein raped her. I know, which is different from his normal M.O., Right. It's different from the other ones where I think she might have even been 16 or 17. I'm not sure the age. I think she was a little bit older than some of the other ones, at least her claim anyway. Yeah. 15, I think it's a... Okay, so I have an interesting article here. Uh, some people might be interested in this. I doubt it. Many of our listeners will. But one woman has found the perfect solution for not losing her car keys. She implanted them in her arm. A key file. Oh, that's convenient. Software engineer uh, Amy DD took the car-shaped key fob that Tesla gives owners to unlock the vehicle and implanted part of it in her arm, which allows her to open her Tesla with her body rather than a traditional key. And anybody who would like to learn her step-by-step process, there is a video on the site Hackaday where you can get an excellent look at the step-by-step process. I find this part interesting here. She said what she did is she took the valet card from a Tesla Model 3. She moved the chip from the physical card that allows it to be unlocked. And then with the help of a body modification studio and a gentleman named (laughs) Pineapple, she was able to implant the card into her forearm. Now, in order to make it safe, she had the – do what? Ouch. Yeah, I know. It sounds painful. sounds awful. She she told The Verge that – her arm is still swollen where the implant oh was placed, God. so she needs to be very close to the vehicle for it to work because of all the swelling, I guess. Oh, my gosh. In that so article. Like an ARFID, right? Isn't that the uh, like an implantable ID thing? Yeah, That's I guess. Like a, right? Isn't that a, a So thing? another person they talk about at this is a DEF CON where these people were. They say this wasn't the only Tesla hack that they came across this week. There was a man named Truman Kane at DEFCON who hacked his Model 3 Tesla and turned it into a surveillance bot that can spot, track, and store license plates as well as faces that it encounters. To make this work, he essentially hacked into the dashboard of the Tesla Model S using the USB port on the dashboard and made it so that the vehicle's built-in cameras were being used as, as a surveillance system rather than just detecting the presence of nearby vehicles. He's quoted as saying, it's meant to be another set of eyes to help out and tell you it's seen a license plate following you over multiple days or even multiple turns of a single trip. Mm. So there you go. Your car, your Tesla Model 3 can be hacked, <laughs> turned into a surveillance and facial recognition recognition system. Yes, foreshadowing. Yeah. Uh, oh, one little addition to the whole economy thing and trade stuff. I noticed a headline flash that 
Trump is using the Hong Kong protests as leverage in trade negotiations, given that we are that, according to the Ron Paul Institute, the National Endowment of Democracy, which is a, a U.S. government barely front operation, is behind or at least encouraging those protests. It makes sense uh, that. Trump would feel like he had the power to control it. But what he actually said was, just to be clear, it says Trump suggested a personal meeting with China's Xi to discuss the Hong Kong crisis and warned Beijing and must respond humanely to the protests if it wants to strike a trade deal. So I guess Trump is just saying, hey, man, if you want if you want we're it feels like a threat to me. He said that they have to respond to the protesters if he, if he wants to deal mainly. They humanely, have to respond okay. humanely to the protesters or we won't give them a trade deal. It just It's just tying in the Hong Kong thing, which looks like we are behind it. I was waiting for, you know, I wondered if it had anything to do with our trade stuff with mainland China. I don't know if it does or not, but maybe they're just exploiting it. I don't know. But I just, it's Possibly. noteworthy. Those protests have gotten, they've gotten more intense and they've started to become a little bit violent in the past couple of days, so... We'll see how that ends up turning out. Yep. All right, so we talked about – been a lot of talk about voting machines. You know, Stacey Abrams talked a lot about that and getting the voting system correct in this country. And I talked about a story last week about DARPA was doing uh, – they had a $10 million voting machine that they created, and they had invited hackers to come try and hack this I, they wanted it to be an impenetrable voting machine, I guess. Well, I have the results of this little contest that they had, and DARPA's $10 million voting machine could not be hacked at DEF CON. You want to know why? Why? The reason, technical difficulties during the machine startup. The hackers Come never on. got a chance to hack it. No okay. way. Couldn't even get the $10 million machine up and running correctly. But still, then, and how convenient to not expose it to hacks that there could have worked. Yeah, yeah, no. Nope, so. Well, I actually had a voting story in my list too, which is in Georgia, a judge denies the attempt to have Georgia voters use paper ballots, and our guy or my favorite local activist, Garland Fabrito, is a big advocate of. Of, of certain types of machines, but paper ballots and uh, more accountable, auditable voting. It's also cheaper to do it his way. So I think I might have him on the WSB show this Saturday if I can, just to see kind of the latest in what we should know about the the evolution of voting in this country. Yeah, it's going to be a hot topic here in the coming months leading yep. up to the 2020 election. Yep. You got another story? Uh. I have many stories, but I'd rather um, have a little call to action. Okay. Can I can Go I make a suggestion? So we uh, we have been doing this for a couple of weeks. This drive time prop. So every day, thirty minutes of news for you, and it's I've found it very educational, very stimulating, very fun. But it's also time consuming, and it has to be you know kind of. Uh, Worth it. People, if we feel like there's a, a demand for it, we're going to do it. So now's the time where we're, we're worked. I think we've pretty much worked out any kind of quality control kinks to be able to get it done in short order, bought some new equipment. So from here on in, I hope that the quality is uh, excellent. But I wanted two things. One is during this time, where we're just kind of trying to gauge the demand 
if you like the show and you want us to keep doing it, we would like to double our listenership in a week or two. So if you could take this show or this show has this request in it, so maybe this is the best show, but your favorite drive time prop and think hard about somebody you think really would have an appetite for it and send it to that one person or if it's more than one person. And if upon thinking about it, you have any suggestions for us, what you like about the show, what you do not like about it, why you think, well, I know a friend who would like it, except for it's too deep or too fast or I don't know what. We set up a uh, request for feedback at thepropreport.com, the website. It should be pinned to the top. And it just go in and tell us what you think, and we will think hard about your suggestions and would greatly appreciate if you would uh, think hard about a, who might enjoy it and give this uh, just at least one share. Anything else on that, Binkley? Do you one feel like share, two shares, <laughs> three shares, four. Okay. As many Five. as we can. But thank you. Yes, definitely. All the, all the help we can get there, we greatly appreciate it. And we got about a minute left. If you got another story you want to hit? Oh, um, I hate I hate hearing pages turn. That drives me crazy. But How about there this you one? go. Woman okay. posing for photo with octopus bitten twice in the face. A Washington State woman participating in a fishing derby learned a valuable lesson when she posed for a photo with an octopus, and the mollusk bit her on the face. In the photo, you will see why it bit her on the face because she was posing with it resting on her face. <laughs> I would think that that would be the expected Yuck. outcome of that type yes. of photograph. Yikes. So don't put octopus on your face. All right. All right, let's let's uh hey, let let's tease to tomorrow. I'll see if I can find the answer to this question I saw flash across a sports show as I was walking through a lobby of an office building yesterday. Does Mike Tyson smoke $40,000 worth of pot a month? That was the question, and I was walking too fast to find out the answer, but I'm going to find out the answer and tell you tomorrow. Find out the answer tomorrow here on the Drive Time Prop. You can find your Drive Time Prop every day at 4 p.m. at thepropreport.com or your favorite podcasting platform. We'll talk to you next time.